The Evolution Channel is sponsored by Eternal Gold Beauty, the most advanced skincare line in the world. Awaken your skin to aging in reverse at eternalgoldbeauty.com today. You're listening to The Frequency of Creativity with Melinda Har Curley. Welcome everyone to The Frequency of Creativity, where we explore the energetics of art. I'm your host, Melinda Har Curley, and you can find us on the Evolution Channel of the Superpower Network. To view my paintings, The Intersection of Energy and Art, please visit my website at melindaharcurley.com. Today, we are talking about an artist who perfectly epitomizes how art, and in this case, paintings, can stop you in your tracks with a powerful energy that just radiates out from the canvas and can create an electric charge in you. That was my experience when I first saw the works of Clifford Still. Still was one of the stalwarts of the abstract expressionist movement here in the U.S. during the 1940s through the 70s. His immense paintings in both size and scope, captured the attention of the art world for their innovation and strength of vision. Still was fiercely independent and would not compromise himself for fame or money. He is the exact kind of artist that we examine here on the frequency of creativity. And we want to discover how he tuned in to a frequency of energy and then capture that powerful energy in his strong and arresting paintings that are uniquely his creations. And to help us explore those questions today, I'm excited to have as our guest, Andy Cushion. Andy is an educational staff member at the Clifford Still Museum in Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Andy. Hi, Melinda. I'm glad to be here. And we're so glad to have you here as well. In addition to Andy being a staff member at the Still Museum, Andy is also a poet. Yes, Um, yes. And so am I. So Andy and I have this bond that we're both poets. So my natural question from that is, Andy, how does your background in poetry inform your experience of Still's paintings? Well, you know, I I am trying to answer this question all the time when I'm at work or just personally, you know, when I'm encountering Clifford Still's work and using that as a source of inspiration for my poetry or responding to it in my poetry. And I think that what poetry gives you access to is you don't need, I mean, you don't, you don't even need complete sentences to talk about, you know, the image in front of you or to talk about the experience of, a per, of being a person, of being alive when it comes to poetry. And so you're freed from the explanation or, or the sort of narrative that I think otherwise we, we kind of force ourselves into, especially when it comes to Clifford Still's paintings. They, they go together, but they stand apart on their own. And when people come down to the front desk after they've just experienced the paintings, you know, their own quotes, the things that are coming to their mind, maybe they say, 
you know, just one phrase that was important to them that they that they sort of thought of while they were up there. And then they don't have a way of explaining it. And so I think poetry receives those phrases and those sort of the openness that that you can have in your in your poetry and and in responding to other people. I think that that's it's just a perfect way to catch what's actually going on in the Clifford Still paintings. I totally agree with you. And Still's work, I agree that lend itself so well to poetry because Still wanted the viewer to have their own experience of the painting and had some of the names that he gave them that gave you no clue what his intention was or the subject matter was of the painting. Andrew, we're going to have to go to a short break. Um, Before we do, can you tell us a little bit about the Clifford Still Museum and how people can find out information about it? Sure. So the Clifford Still Museum was uh, constructed in 2011 in, in Denver, Colorado. It is the home to all of Clifford Still's art that belonged to him and his family at the time of his death in 1980. And it was all sort of donated freely to the city and county of Denver, and it will remain here in the city and county of Denver forever. Uh, so we have 95% of all the work that Clifford Still ever did. And it's here in our museum where we only show Clifford Still, which was one of the stipulations of Clifford Still's will and the the hopes of the estate. So we honor Clifford Still's work in our museum, but we also create a lot of space for new interpretations of Clifford Still's work. You know, we're not just called to exhibit his work, but also to study it and and to teach towards it as well as I do as an educator at the museum. Okay, Um, when we come back, we'll dive much more deeply into what makes Clifford Still one of the most powerful American painters. Hello, I'm Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts and creator of the Superpower Network. Welcome and thank you for making us your go-to place for inspired content, training, and community. The network is so much more than a place for amazing content. It's step one on the path to unlock your superpowers. Listen to one episode daily on the Superpower Network and attune yourself to inspired conversations, higher vibrational living, and much, much more. In step two, you learn with us by watching one of our inspirational videos each week from the IM series. And when you're ready, come grow in community. Our Superpower programs offer a unique experience for those ready to harness their superpowers to change themselves, their lives, and ultimately, the world. Go to superpowerexperts.com and take the next step on your path today. We're back with the frequency of creativity, exploring the energetics of art. Today, we're talking with Andy Cushion about the powerful paintings of Clifford Still. Andy, I remember so vividly the first time I saw one of Still's paintings. It was at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C., and they had um, the painting. And, I, I, you know, I just love his work so much. I can't remember the exact painting that it was, but what I do remember is its effect on me. So where they had it hung, you walked into the exhibition room and it was directly across from the doorway. And it's like, as soon as I walked in the doorway, the power of that painting and the Mm -hmm. energy of it just came right to the doorway. And I couldn't even walk in because it's the power of it. 
I just had to literally, as I said at the beginning of the show, stop in my tracks. Mm-hmm. And Andy, I've, I'm also um, a shamanic Reiki master teacher. And so I've been really fortunate enough to be around a number of shamans that I highly respect. That painting had that same shamanic energy mm. to me. Mm-hmm. It's this organic, deeply rooted, wise, strong energy that just kind of intimidated me as yeah. well as interested me and drew me in. Well, they were always meant to be very serious. You know, I mean, Clifford still took himself incredibly seriously and took the power of this artwork very, very seriously. He did not think, I mean, we we have a quote that we use sometimes at the museum. These are not paintings in the usual sense. They are life and death merging in fearful union. That's one of the quotes that, I mean, you know, you say that, and I think somebody who's not seen a Clifford Still painting might think, okay. (laughs) But when you're there in person and, and you see these forces, you see the layers of paint and the depth of the color of the paint, all of which he's completely responsible for. He's mixing his own paints. He's stretching his own canvas. He doesn't have anybody else helping him on the construction of these paintings or doing any of the underpainting or anything like that. These are also images that were incredibly salient to him. He practiced these ahead of time. He would do these on sort of works on paper ahead of time where he would do smaller scales of the paintings and then do these large scale, just I mean, beautiful, but also intense and, and very rooted paintings, you know, rooted in the earth. I think if I if I looked it up correctly, the painting that you saw at the Phillips is a 1950 painting by Clifford Still, very brown with one sort of central dot or yes. kind of circular figure in the center. Yes, that is it. And that you see it. people respond to that, that layering of that dark paint. And then just the shock, I think, of having something that can that can seem so simple, but they're not simple. It's not just geometry either. You know, he's not measuring these circles. These are specific shapes that are circles, but not circles. And these are specific colors that are almost earth-like, but not earth-like, you know? And, and he, he looks for those points of comparisons while also doing something completely new. So um, Andy still grew up on a working And when I saw a documentary on him, it looked like a barren farm in Mm -hmm. Canada. Mm -hmm. And it just, my impression is that it was a very difficult childhood on kind of a large barren landscape. How do you think that experience translated into his paintings? Well, I think you see it when he's really young, when he's starting to paint. I mean, he starts to paint the way a lot of us start to make art. He sort of looks out the window and he paints what he sees. And so I think the beauty of our collection at the Clifford Stone Museum is we have all of the early works he did as well. The stuff that is not Clifford Still fame making, but but those landscapes that he's doing, the relationship between the horizon, you know, in some of these early paintings he's doing, the horizon is at the bottom third of the painting and then the top two thirds of the sky. And so I think 
when you look at those later paintings that he comes back to, especially later in his life, when he moves back to Maryland, you know, he's sort of, or not back to, but when he moves to Maryland for the last 20 years of his life, and he's sort of seeking a retreat and also a, a similar kind of environment where he can have space to himself, where he can have a relationship with the land around him, he returns to those horizons. I think you also see Clifford Still's relationship to the land or just that that hardship. You know, he has this notion that comes through in his work that when when people, when when animals, when plants are alive, they they grow vertically. They emerge out of the earth and they sort of stand up against the force of gravity. And then when we die, we are horizontal. So you have these, you know, figures even in the early 1930s when his work is starting to shift that seem almost squashed or pushed over or pushed down, but are still managing to find a way to remain upright. And so those, that, that feeling of um, strength, I think, standing alone in, a, in an empty plane, you know, that's just hugely important to what his work becomes. You know, and um, when you say that, I get the very strong image. He experimented a lot with the vertical line Mm-hmm. And then when I see the the term lifelines, I always assumed that that's what he was referring to, this vertical line. Mm-hmm. And in watching the documentary, he tells of a childhood experience, and it was traumatic. Andy, why don't you share with our listeners what that experience was? Sure. Yeah, we, we have his daughter to thank for relating stories like these. You know, we're, we're so lucky to have both of his daughters still alive. But, you know, she recounts the story of when Clifford Still was an only child living on a farm in Alberta, Canada. He, you know, his, his family had a well, as a lot of people would have, you know, had wells for fresh water. And they were, I think, excavating the well. They were trying to open up the well further. And, uh, there was dynamite involved at sort of at the bottom of the well and the dynamite hadn't gone off. And so it was Clifford Still's father who said, you know, well, we need you. We need you for this, you know, and Clifford Still is a child. He doesn't really know how to, how to say yes or no, I suppose in this way, but he ends up being lowered into the well to see if the dynamite is going to go off what the trouble is and and that experience (laughs) of being lowered into the well, I think just tied by his foot or sort of holding onto this rope just in a very precarious way. I mean, in some ways, you know, depending on where you read the, the quote from still, it seems like perhaps he never forgave his father or that it was just a really difficult moment to accept the burden of, of the success or failure of, of a whole farm enterprise. I mean, you can't have a farm without a well. You can't live somewhere without fresh water. All falling on him as the only child and falling on him as somebody who, you know, a family's legacy relies on. So that experience, when I heard that, they gave a whole new dimension to the term lifeline. Oh, yeah. And then I noticed in some of his earlier work, too, was there a large Native American presence there? Because I noticed um, when he was doing in his early work, more representational work, a lot of paintings and drawings of Native Americans. 
Yeah. So when Clifford still was young, you know, I mean, he starts as a landscape painter, sort of this regionalist painter, and it takes him a while uh, for him to finish high school, for him to finish his undergraduate experience. And then in the 1930s, he's uh, he's a sort of doing a graduate program at Pullman College. I think it was Washington State College is what it was called at the time um, in Pullman, Washington. It, it has a different name now, but, you know, we, we sort of see these old names in his letters. And when he's there in eastern Washington State, just outside of Spokane, um, the Confederated Tribes of Colville are nearby. And they, he and another professor, I think potentially a professor of anthropology, received a grant to paint and to capture and to document the lives and the likenesses of the folks living at the Confederated Tribes of Colville. So that was two separate summers where that was a project Clifford still was involved in at the university level. But I think that that, you know, when you live out West, you see the influence of, you know, landscape, you see the influence of animal plant life, you see the influence of Native folks when it comes to when it comes to artwork, I mean, I think we're lucky here in Denver to have a huge collection of Native artwork at the Denver Art Museum. And so there is points of comparison that I think are undeniable when you look at Clifford Still's work, especially in the early 1940s as his work is transforming, you know, from, from what other artists were still stuck working with sort of geometry or stuck working through images. Um, I think it was maybe Motherwell who said, you know, all of us were working through images, still had none. You know, I mean, he's just yeah. moving straight to the experience, the color, yeah. the paint. But we do have paintings at our museum that when I look at them, I, I do, I make those associations as well with the, with the native artifacts and, and some of the artwork that he did when he was in Colville. Well, and kind of what I was getting at, Andy, you know, before when I um, spoke when I first saw his work and I had that very strong shamanic feeling. Mm -hmm. So I feel not only representationally that he painted Native Americans, but I, I'm, I feel like he absorbed the that strong shamanic medicine man kind of energy. Mm -hmm. And I feel that in his work. And I'm wondering if that experience, you know, working with the Native Americans for those two summers, if some of that culture seeped into him and his work and contributes to that powerful energy of his. Well, it's just, it's there. It's absolutely there. I mean, as a visual corollary, but also I think his relationship to painting as it relates to life, as an activity, you know, I mean, towards the end of his life, when when Clifford still was dying of cancer, um, you know, this might seem like a crazy place to go, but uh, he, he's dying of cancer and, and the doctor says, you know, well, Mr. Still, you should do something you like. So you, you should you should go and paint while you still can. Um, and he said, no, painting is something I do while I'm living, you know, not while I'm dying. And so that that intense mm. respect for, I think, what the paintings receive you know, from, from him, the artist, and that intense respect for the power of the paint. I think that comes through, and, and the legacy too, that these were not commercial objects. You know, he's not trading these uh, or, or using these exclusively for sale, but, but the, these are actual, something is being captured here that he hopes lasts, I mean, forever. 
which is why he ultimately wills them away to an American city to take care of. I think in that regard too, that that understanding that these are not pieces of artwork that illustrate, you know, a, a man's time limits him, I think is the quote by Clifford still, you know, and so this idea that the work should be timeless, the work should be, I think primeval was one of the words that we used when talking about the work earlier. Uh, that is completely part of the, the legacy of this work. Primeval is such a good adjective for his work, and I definitely experienced that. Andy, can you also speak, because I think this really informs Still's painting as well, and again, it's just a guess on my part because he doesn't leave very many clues. No, no. Um, and watching the um, documentary on Still on that's available on Prime that is very well done. They um, it talks about how independent he is, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to name the other painters, but he accuses very publicly other painters of selling out mm-hmm. and. He was, as I said in the beginning in describing him, so fiercely independent, and he truly was not tempted by money or fame. And that's how dedicated he was to the purity of his art. Well, it's also really wonderful at the museum. We don't just have Clifford Still's paintings or or his drawings, not even just the photos he took. We also have his letters, his diary notes, and he often took notes from letters he wrote. So, you know, if he wrote, for example, to a famous abstract expressionist painter, and he was friends with many of them in the 1940s in San Francisco, if he wrote down something that he thought was really important or, or some articulation that he thought really got to the core of what he was about as a painter, he would write that down. So we have so much documentation of his, I mean, I would say a real generous friendship with the whole community of abstract expressionist painters in the 1940s. But then after 1951, when Clifford still stops allowing his work to be shown in commercial galleries, you know, tries to pull his work back into his own power, you know, as an artist and under his own control as an artist. When you see these other people that you've supported and you see these other people who you respect, you know, not able to extricate themselves from the commercial world. I mean, for still, it was it was really disappointing. I think, you know, he is willing to give any artist, he was willing to give any artist, you know, their due as an artist to investigate their own interests, you know, and prerogatives. But I think the thing that he was not willing to do was accommodate commercial interests. You know, he sold his paintings throughout his life. He did, you know, we only have 95% of the work that he has, but it was true. It was, it was huge. It was a huge shift in the power of who gets to decide the value of his paintings when he stops showing them in commercial galleries and when it's his decision to personally sell them to people he can trust or to sell them to museums, ultimately in a a type of trial run for what became the Clifford Still Museum. You know, the work that you've seen when you saw it at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, for instance, that's work that Clifford Still decided needed to go to San Francisco. It needed to be there as a legacy and it needed to be there as a gift. And so that was, those were always deliberate choices he made too, I think in a really smart and insightful way to kind of undermine the commercial strength of the art world. And, and reaffirm the importance of the artist as the sole, the sole source of the art's legitimacy. And that independence, I think, 
translates directly to his work. Because mm-hmm. as we kind of touched on earlier, his work was so unique and such an embodiment of him. And there was no other work that was like that. And the quote you gave earlier of mother that by Motherwell, that Cliff, he didn't have any images. This was his direct experience. Mm-hmm. And you relating these stories of his independence and uh, having control over his um, collection, I think that relates directly to his art and the experience of his art. And when I am in front of a still painting, I experience that independence through his work. And that's the most important thing to him too, is that each and every one of us who approaches his paintings has a direct experience with the art. You know, I mean, that that we're not seeing these and sort of being interrupted by a title or being interrupted by... Uh, he didn't want his work to be shown with other artists, but I think sometimes that can seem selfish when in fact, for still, he believed all artists deserve to be seen in their own context, that each artist was doing something really important that deserved to be respected by, by being surrounded by their own work so that you don't just see you know, one Clifford still surrounded by a bunch of contemporary art and sort of think, oh, that was the only thing he did. That was all he was about. It was this one little piece that I saw today. You know, and so when you come to the museum, you see the changes, the sort of improvements. <laughs> it almost feels like he feels he's making. The road's not taken. You know, the strange routes. You know, we wonder why he spent so long there. <laughs> and then the work that the work that just gives and it and it just gives to you the viewer in a way that you can walk away from and just be changed one of my favorite stories i think that again exemplifies his strong will um somehow uh, a person acquired one of his paintings mm-hmm. and then he was shipping it somewhere and still did not like that mm-hmm. still went to his house The owner was not there. Mm -hmm. He found the painting, Mm -hmm. took a knife, cut the painting around the frame of the painting, rolled it up and took it. So when you say still was serious about his art. (laughs) Yeah. We have that actual, that, that, that portion of the painting that cut out. We have that on site at our museum. I mean, it oh just feels goodness. like an unbelievable story. But then you then you see these actual pieces. I mean, I mean, the guy was serious. He really meant it, that his work was not to be shown outside of certain contexts. Or, you know, in, in this case, that the person wanted to ship the work to Europe to kind of be shown in, in the Venice Biennial, which is a huge achievement for yes. any artist. But yes. for still, that was not what the art was for. That was not what that painting was supposed to be for. And so, I mean, it just shows, I think, his independence and also his ability to accommodate change. I think, you know, when you can when you can rip out the heart of your own artwork, he knows that these paintings, you know, they are they are outside of him and yet they are part of him too. You know, he can do these again, he can improve upon them, he can make sort of replicas or copies as we've investigated at the museum, but but they cannot be violated in certain ways. He he won't stand for that. 
Andy, so tell me, um, I feel like you have an ideal job and how (laughs) fortunate you are to be surrounded by this power on a daily basis Mm -hmm. and then to share your experience with museum visitors. Can I ask, how has this experience informed your life? Well, I think when you see the length and the scope of Clifford Still's life, I think it gives you a lot of confidence as an artist to realize like, you know, it it took him until he was in his mid forties to figure out this abstract work, to really hit this stride that has changed our own lives, you and me, you know, when it, when it comes to looking at his paintings and, and understanding that power. And so I think it gives you a lot of confidence in your own artistic production, you know, in my case as a poet to just investigate, to try things, to experiment, to, and just to trust the process. You know, I've got my entire life to make my favorite piece of my own artwork, you know, and I won't know until the very end of my life, which one that was when it happened. So I don't have to, you know, you can, you can be creatively open, I think, in in responding to this kind of work or responding in a place like this. Well, if you had to pick a mentor, you chose very wisely in choosing Clifford Still. And Andy, as a poet, I would love for you to share with our listeners uh, one Mm -hmm. of your original poems that you wrote in response to a still painting. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I am super, I I feel so lucky, you know, to be on site, to get to see these paintings and to see the light as it sort of changes over them. So this is a painting that really spoke to me. um, And it's also a response to a poem by our contemporary poet laureate, uh, Joy Harjo. So this is the painting. uh, The painting is called this, and it's also the title, PH 432, 1964 by Clifford Still, after Joy Harjo. I release you, fear. Release you the way the bear in the West lets go the rock under which you live, a simple Miller moth. There have been fearful days in your symmetrical life encountering mine. Mornings where I woke staggered, the scales on my eyes, fear the clouds outside. Fear, I release you, but you are gravity. Your desired migration It's unelected. Fear, you've been released. Proof, I'm done. A wingtip eye in the night under the cover of rain. Animal, when I speak, you barely hear me. Grunts, gestures, this. Glass nodules in the lungs, a sound repeating. Fear, I believe you've overstayed the slight agreement we had, superposition. I crush you here, fear, my curtains full of you. Fear, the awaiting mouth bears down. And again, that was PH 432, 1964 by Clifford Still, which you can find on our collections viewer at the museum. Andy, that was beautiful. And not only was it beautiful, I think it really captured the spirit of Clifford Still himself because I know my impression of him is that he did not have a lot of fear. So not only did you give tribute to the painting, but to the artist Clifford Still as well. I mean, he knew 
I think it's just something, you know, when you grow up on a farm, mortality, you know, the existence of your life and the struggle that it, that it takes to be alive and to persist, you know, to create anything, to grow anything out of the ground or, or to make something of your own hands. And ultimately, by the end of his life, he wasn't afraid. You know, he knew that what he had done was something serious, something completely his own. You know, he had investigated every every part of painting and every sort of aspect of the image that he was interested in. I think you can't be fearful when you've, when you've left it all on the table like he has. And he did. Yeah. Andy, thank you so much for being with us today. You really um, enlightened us and just illuminated the amazing and powerful legacy that Clifford still left. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I hope folks, if they're interested, look up the Clifford Still Museum. We're in Denver, Colorado. Um, We'll be in Denver, Colorado forever. The work is owned (laughs) by the city and county. It's not going anywhere. And so we'd be happy to have you anytime you stop by. And if you go, ask for Andy Cushion. Yeah, that's true. You might see me at the desk waving hello. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today and experiencing one of my most powerful mentors, Clifford Still. To view my energetic paintings, please visit my website at melindaharcurley.com. Please join us again on the Frequency of Creativity, where we explore the energetics of art. Now, be your own life force energy. Thank you for listening to the Superpower Network. Go now to superpowerexperts.com to unlock your superpowers and change your life today.